great singing, great singing about Calvary. Our upper students can be dismissed for Children's Church. Those up uh, to age 11 or so that are with us can head that way. You know, Brother Connor's got a great lesson for them. And uh, appreciate, appreciate him doing that. Listen, I want you to come back tonight. I know some of you uh, don't usually do that. I want to encourage you to come. Uh, our students are going to share a little bit about their trip to the National. Those that went, we had, we had a few that went. They're going to share about that. And uh, Brother Trey is going to preach for us. And uh, this will be his uh, really first time in his life uh, preaching uh, to more than just our little college group. We let him do a little three-part series on our Wednesday night college young adult group. And uh, tonight uh, is really his first, uh, first kind of official message, you might say. And so I've invited some people that uh, Brother Trey... Uh, helped coach in basketball over at All Good. He's an assistant coach there, and he's a marketing major at Tech, and he's been helping us out this summer, done a great job. And so he is going to preach tonight. So I want to encourage you to come back at 6 o'clock and uh, support Brother Trey, and uh, you, you be here uh, tonight. Now, i got to say something because I know I heard what my dad said. I don't know where he's at. He probably left after Sunday school after saying this, and I just need to address something he said in Sunday school uh, that my dad said. My dad apparently went into Sunday school today, and apparently he went in there and he told them, well, my son had one big takeaway from the National this year. One big takeaway. And apparently my dad said that the one big takeaway that I had was that I came back to him and I said, Dad, there's one thing I figured out this year at the National. And Dad said, what was that? And I said, I have got the best looking wife out of all these preachers. It's true. It's true. I did say that and uh, I stand by that and... Uh, I do, and uh, man, uh, I know I'm embarrassed a little bit, but if we're blessed to have Laura as a pastor's wife, would you say amen? We really are. And uh, So look, you get rid of me, there's no telling how ugly the next woman will be that comes along, all right? So uh, you just got to roll, just roll with what you got, all right? All right, listen, if you're ready to worship today, say amen. I am ready, and I was excited. I was excited at the National to tell people about what happened this summer. By the way, we're, the baptisms have already jumped up. We're baptizing three, not two, three. And I want to throw this out here. Maybe there's somebody here that you have accepted Jesus as your Savior. You could sing that last song that we sang. What That's a confession of faith, that last song, and the song about Mount Calvary. Both those are confessions of faith about what we believe. And maybe you have accepted Jesus and you are following him, but you have never followed the Lord in baptism. And maybe you're afraid. Maybe you say, I can't swim, or I'm afraid of water, or whatever the hang-up is. Listen, the Lord God says, I want you to do this. I want you to go through this act because really baptism is your confession to a watching world that you have died to sin and you've been risen to new life. And the New Testament, that's really how the profession of faith was made. When you did that in front of witnesses, it was, hey, I'm dead to the old life. And I've been born the new and Jesus commands us to do it. And so listen, if you're afraid, listen, Brother, Brother Mark is going to be in there uh, doing this. I'll, I'll be there to help. And, and we may have one other man in that water. And so you say, I've never done it. Listen, now would be the time. Now, let's make it four. Let's make it five. All right? Let's see what God does. But if God, if you've never been baptized, and listen, if you come talk to me privately and you still decide, I just, I, for whatever reason, you say, hey, I just can't do this. I'm not going to go tell anybody. I'm not going to go talk about it. But if you've never been baptized and you need to be, listen, August 12th would be a great day. If you'd like to see us go, we've gone from two to three. If you'd like to see us go from three to four, say amen. Listen, man, the Bible teaches us you've got to serve somebody. There's a song written in 1980 that won a Grammy, and uh, that 1980 Grammy award-winning song 
said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. Or you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So went, so started, the most polarizing song of the folk singer Bob Dylan's career. He wrote that song in 1980. Now, Bob Dylan's Christian testimony has a lot that is lacking. Uh, it is certainly not an example I'd want to give of, of, of what that might look like. But in 1980, God used Bob Dylan to proclaim a truth that embarrassed and angered many of his friends and associates in the music world. They became even angrier when that song won a Grammy in 1980. The song so angered John Lennon of the Beatles that he wrote a song in 1980 in response titled Serve Yourself. Dylan's title was, you got to serve somebody, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. John Lennon of the Beatles in 1980 wrote a response to that, it made him so mad. His song was, you've got to serve yourself. And in it, Lennon asserted, you got to serve yourself because ain't nobody going to do it for you. What was really sad is that in 1980, when that year came to a close, John Lennon would be shot dead. A life of serving himself and sinning against God had finally come to a conclusion. And there is no doubt, as Lennon stood before God after he had been killed, that Lennon had no excuse. Because in the last year of his life, what else, whatever else had happened before in the last year of his life, he had heard the truth of the gospel from a very unusual source Nonetheless, the message had pricked his heart. And Lennon had said, I want nothing to do with that. I will not serve God. I will serve myself. you got to serve somebody. That's true today. It was true in 1980, and it was true in the ancient world. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning, and I want us to see one of these classic confrontations in the Bible, a classic text where it becomes clear that you've got to serve somebody, who is it going to be? And from our text this morning, we're going to see very clearly the same thing that John Lennon was confronted with. You will either serve God or you will serve yourself, which is in effect putting you in the service of God's enemy, the devil who has entered uh, into this world and brought sin and pain. Acts chapter 17. Here are Paul and Silas and Timothy. And we saw last week Luke, the writer of Acts, is apparently joined in with them. We don't know if there are others. But these four are going and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. They've been doing this. And uh, they're moving. They're moving. God stopped their path. They wanted to go to Asia. God wouldn't let them. So they wanted to go a little different way. God wouldn't let them. And we saw last week that God turned them towards Europe. They're heading into Macedonia uh, where Alexander the Great's people were from that took over Greece and then took over the world. They've headed into Macedonia, we saw last week. They've gone to Philippi, and, uh, and they, boy, they got in trouble at Philippi. We saw that last week. They really stirred up a hornet's nest in Philippi. Why? Because they set a slave girl free that was in bondage to Satan and sin. They set her free, and it so angered those that were making money off of her sin. 
And so they've had to leave town. And now we're going to see where they go next. Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphilosis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, remember Paul's commission is to preach the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So here there is a synagogue. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days, so three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them, he preached to them, he discussed with them out of the Scriptures. What did he do? He opening and alleging, he taught them, what? That Christ must needs have suffered, right? He suffered for our sin, that he's risen again from the dead, and that Jesus, whom I preach unto you, Paul said, is Christ. So he preached the life of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, and how Jesus rose again and has brought us salvation. If you're glad for salvation today, say amen. I mean, isn't it great to have Brother Jack and Miss Betty with us and Brother Bill and Miss Anna with us today and some of our friends. And, and man, they, you know, they uh, physically, there's been a lot going on. But I believe they tell you today that Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still watching over them. He has saved them, and this is what Jesus does. And so, he, what's he doing? He's preaching the old message, the same message. Jesus has risen, and he's given new life. Verse 4, what happens when they preach the message? Some of them believed. So some of these Jews in the synagogue and and God-fearers, these Gentiles that would have been there listening, some of them believed. And they consorted, or they identified with, or they linked up with Paul and Silas. Of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, many among the God-fearing Greeks that had been uh, going to synagogue and listening to the Hebrew Scriptures, many of them embraced the gospel. And then we get this little subgroup among the, the, the pagan Greek uh, uh, people of the chief women, not a few. Many women joined in. Many of these women join in. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy. They are jealous, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows, so they went out and they found troublemakers of the baser sort, of a low sort, and they gathered a company. And they set all the city on an uproar. They get a mob together. And they assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring him out to the people. And when they found them not, so they want to find Paul, they want to uh, bring him out, they've got this mob stirred up, And they go to Jason's house, who apparently is one of these that has embraced Paul and embraced the mission and embraced Jesus. Verse 6, when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren, so they they get a group of these new believers. They took them where? Under the rulers of the city. And they cried and they said, these, what's the accusation? What 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 are they saying? These that have turned the world upside down are come here, come hither also. Whom Jason has received. This man Jason has received. These folks that are turning the world upside down. Whom Jason has received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're they're serving another Lord other than Caesar. And in fact what they are doing is opposed to Caesar. Saying that there is another king. One Jesus. Boy doesn't this take you back to the end of Jesus' days. Before he was crucified. When another mob came and another mob gathered together folks and and another group of Jewish leaders who were moved with envy at how Jesus 
connected to the common people and was preaching salvation to them. This reminds me of another mob that got together and in front of Pilate said, crucify him, for he says he's the king of the Jews. He would lead us to serve another other than Caesar. And now we fast forward, and now the same trick of the devil, he uses the same tricks from generation to generation. Now, several years have gone by at this point, and now here's another mob bringing the Christians making the same accusation they made against our Lord Jesus the Christ. He would lead us away from Caesar. He would proclaim that there's another king, King Jesus. And what did these men, these troublemakers, in connection with these Jews that were envious, what did they do? They troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason, that's like a bond, And of the other, they let them go. What is the bond? A little different than how we would do it. Uh, Apparently, there's some sort of agreement that they won't stir up trouble, and that at least for a season, it seems that Paul will go away. That, listen, we're not trying to stir up trouble. We're not out here trying to lead people into an insurrection. That's not what we're doing. And so they, they make this agreement that happens. And verse 10 says, Then the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night. Apparently they've been hiding out. Now, there are times where it's clear that the, the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Silas and others to directly uh, confront what's going on. There are other times for the cause of Christ that, it, that they are moved away, that they silently go other places, that they have done what they needed to do and they move on. The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. And coming there, what did he do? He went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 4, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. Of the devout Greeks, a great multitude of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, verse 5, were moved with envy. In this morning's text, Paul and Silas are traveling that famous Roman road, which is called the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way uh, would take you from Asia, from over uh, in the Middle East, uh, there where Turkey runs up into Asia, would take you from there uh, all the way uh, down into Europe, through the southern part of Europe, all the way over uh, down near Greece, through Macedonia, uh, right on over until the, until the water there separates that part of Europe from Italy. And they are on that road. And if you look right up here through the water, Right up there in that little bay area, you will see Thessalonica. And so Paul, this is where the Holy Spirit led him to go. And he is going and walking and preaching and teaching. And it mentions a couple of cities. We don't know where else he stopped. But it wants to get us to Thessalonica. And this is the most important city in the region. By the way, it was a hundred mile journey from where we were last week to get to Thessalonica. Uh, Did they have animals that made the trip quicker? Uh, Did they walk the 100 miles? We don't know, but the Roman roads were were pretty good roads. In fact, you can still see, 2,000 years later, if you go over there, you will still see cobblestone and and stone, and boy, uh, those roads were really something. Now, I was talking to a couple of our guys this morning that works for Rogers Group, and they lay concrete, and they do all this. And guys, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, 2,000 years later, is your work still going to be there? I mean, we'll we'll have to see. I guess I can't get a refund if I hire you to do anything. 2,000 years will be too long. We, we won't know. 2,000 years. And it's still there. So that's, that's pretty impressive. They, they built some amazing roads. And, and, and now, you've got to be careful. 
But if you have traveling companions at this, at this time, at least on the road, now you didn't necessarily want to get too far off the road, but on the road, it was, it was pretty safe. And so they've gone 100 miles. 100 miles for Paul to go to another place, a central place, a central city, to preach and teach. And we see four responses, don't we? First, there were these religious Jews. These were set in their ways. They're, they're prejudiced against the Jesus. They're hard to reach. I mean, what in the world could Paul and Silas possibly teach them? They already know it all. And there are people like that. You can discuss with them. You can debate with them. You can open the scriptures. But, but as I tell people all the time, there are two kinds of people. There are people that are looking for a reason to not believe. And if you're looking for a reason not to believe, any reason will do. Any reason will do. And then there are those that are open. They're actually looking for a reason to believe. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica. And there's a group that really they're looking for any reason not to believe. And they had their reason. That is they are jealous and envious because a crowd is flocking to them, uh, to Paul and Silas, which is going to dilute their authority. What do we need from Paul and Silas? Then there's a second group. And this is a large gathering of, of Gentile pagans but pagans who had found their pagan gods and their pagan philosophies to be empty. And these were Gentiles that had been attracted to the Jewish scriptures and what the Jewish people were teaching in the synagogues. They had been attracted to this, but they had not yet become Jews. Now for the men, we know, and this is a big thing in the book of Acts, we know that for many of the men, the hang-up was, I do not want to get circumcised as an adult male. I don't want to go through that. And so that was a problem for a lot of them. Uh, for the women... It's not, there's not, there's not the equivalent of circumcision up front, but it would call for a new way of life. So, so, so there are these men and women that they've heard about Jesus now, and guess what? When Jesus comes and they find out, you know what, it's just about Jesus. It's just about Jesus, it's just about what he's done, and it's about faith in him. There are all these Greeks in this city that they begin to embrace Jesus, and they begin to follow him, and they begin to accept him. Now within that group, he gives us the third group. And this comes up several times in Acts, and it comes up several times in, in Paul's letters. What's this third group? These are the leading women of the city. And that emphasis is stated several times in the book of Acts that these are women with some education. I don't know if it's formal education, but they are the upper classes, and they understand how the Greek and Roman world works. They, whether they've been formally instructed in Greek philosophy and religion, I don't know, but given their stature in life, they know what the game is. They know how the Greek and Roman world works. They, they know uh, the philosophies that underlie it. And many of these women had found the Greek philosophy and the Roman way of life to be empty, to be empty. And, and because they were a little higher educated and had more access to things, they realized, they had come to a conclusion that was true, that underneath the Greek and Roman way of life, that it was a system that debased women, that put women down, that allowed uh, husbands to cheat on them, that treated women as property, uh, they were many times just viewed as marriage arrangements to, to transfer wealth. And then and as these upper class women, they thought, this is not right, this is not how we should not be living like this, this is not how, this, something's not right about this. And so these women had found that the philosophy of their day and age uh, had not come through for them. I think about women today. I think about, thinking about Bob Dylan and John Lennon. John Lennon was at the forefront of the great sexual, what we call the sexual liberation of the 1960s. We should rename that now. What has been happening 
we should call this for what it was and what the church called it. It actually just a new form of sexual slavery. What women were told in the 60s is sleep with whoever you can. Let's just break all restraints, da-da-da. And what has now happened, those that came up in that, we just spent the last year with a flood, a flood of sexual assaults that have been going on for decades in Hollywood. For decades in the music industry, decades from the elite news people that have been lecturing us and telling us to throw off, to throw off what God says about marriage and about men and women and how we do things. And a flood, not a trickle, a flood. You know why a flood has opened up from that? Because that's always been a lie. Because I'm, I, listen, ladies, and by the way, ladies can be the same way. They can be. Because guess what? Your heart is just as depraved as mine, ladies. But this is how it's worked. Yeah, let's throw off all restraints. Let's let men do whatever they want. You know why this flood of sexual assault has come up? Because in the heart of every man is sin. My heart, your heart, from the youngest heart to the oldest heart. And when you say we're not going to listen to God and what he has said about how these relationships should be, you're not opening up liberation. You are opening up a playground for the devil to come in to abuse, to kill, to steal, and to hurt. To hurt. These women, I think, were maybe like some women in our day and age. Maybe all this stuff we've been told isn't really true. Maybe what this is is just another way to hurt and to harm others. So these women flock to the gospel. They flock because they find in Jesus that they're not treated as property. They are treated as more than an arrangement to pass on wealth. They are treated as human beings. And this is such a big theme in the book of Acts. If you were glad that the gospel teaches us that not just our sons, but also our daughters are made in the image of God, say amen. So they leave. These women in the book of Acts, in floods, they go. They, they've already turned to the Jewish scriptures because the Jewish scriptures, see, here's what happens. We sometimes read the Old Testament, we miss something here. The laws in the Old Testament, if you read chronologically, when they leave Egypt, many of the laws that Moses gave, that God gave him, were about setting up a new arrangement where the abuse and the harm that the Egyptians had done to the Israelites would never be done by God's people to anybody. And so these women... From this Greco-Roman world, they begin to hear the Jewish scriptures and they begin even in the Old Testament to get these glimpses of, wait a minute, wait a minute women are actually, there's things here that protect us. There are things here that look out for us. And then Paul comes along and Paul says, it's all come together in Jesus. And in Jesus, he calls all of us, all of us Jews and Greeks to be saved. So we see these Jews that do not want to believe, they're hard-hearted, they're looking for any reason to not believe. Then we see Jews who embrace. Then we see pagans who believe. And within that, we see this very important group of leading women that embrace Jesus. In Judaism, in Judaism, they had found glimpses of the truth that have now come to fruition in Jesus Christ. They have found when Paul comes and preach. And can you imagine, can you imagine this if, you, if just all you knew and by the way, I teach, I teach intro to philosophy for Randall University online. And every year we go through Plato. And he's got a lot of amazing things to say. But let me tell you this. Plato was all about you being in your place and never leaving it. And Plato had a very good hierarchy for who's going to be on top and who's going to be on the bottom. And, and, and all, all of the Greek philosophers are that way. 
And can you imagine growing up in that system, growing up in that world? I mean, can we just, can we just, I mean, this is the Lord's day. Just put our mind a little bit in that first century synagogue. And there you are sitting, and you've been listening to Jewish scriptures, and you're you're thinking, I think I could buy into this. And then one day, this guy Paul shows up. And Paul gets up, and instead of preaching a message, says, let me put you in your place and tell you where it is, and you need to stay in that position for the rest of your life. Paul gets up. And Paul says, in Jesus Christ, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free. There is no other distinction. All middle walls of partition, as we sang and confessed today, the veil has been torn. We are all brought together in Jesus. All walls that men have erected and all the walls of sin that have been erected by the devil have been destroyed in Jesus Christ. So here is one response handful of Jews, significant number of Gentiles, and many leading women converting the cause of Christ. You've got to serve somebody, and those chose Christ. So today, if you've been thinking about following Christ, now is the time. Listen, you deserve to be damned to hell for your sin. We all deserve that. Why again has this flood of sexual assault come out in these last days? Because it's telling us something about ourselves. We all have sin in our heart. And if we are allowed to do what we want to do without any restraint by God or guidance by God, listen, we deserve the hell that we give to others. But then there is Jesus. There is Jesus that one day looked down on a sinner like Austin Thompson or looked down on a Daniel Copeland or looked down on a Larry and Vivian Boswell or looked down on a Miss Connie and a Mr. Albert Look down at Chris and at Jessica. There is a Lord Jesus that looked down from heaven and saw that we were headed for the hell that we deserve when we die. And Jesus said, you know what? I don't want my people. I don't want God's people that he made in his image that have been torn apart by sin. I don't want them to go to hell. The book of Revelation gives this image in the throne room of God. They looked and looked and they could find nobody that could come. So the Son of God, Jesus himself, said, I will get off the throne so those that are going to get the hell that they deserve will get the gracious gift of heaven and eternal life instead. If the message of Jesus is still good, say amen. Raymond Lowell knew about this. Never heard of Raymond Lowell? In 1232, Raymond Lowell was from a very wealthy family on an island just off the coast of Spain. That's a picture of him as a young man. He was a a brilliant, brilliant uh, young man. He was part of uh, the science community at that time and just did amazing things. He also was very wicked. And uh, according to his own testimony and those who knew them, he he just engaged in utter immorality. But during his early 30s, something happened to Lowell. Lowell had a dream. He had a vision. And in that dream and vision, he saw the Savior Jesus hanging on his cross, the blood trickling from his hands, his feet, his brow. And Jesus from the cross was looking, staring at him. As a result of this vision that he could not shake, Lowell gave his life to Christ, confessed him as Lord, devoted himself to ministry, became a missionary. Many say the first uh, missionary of what, of what we might call the European age, the first missionary to go to the Muslims, eventually dying a martyr's death at the age of 80 by their hands. Of course, Richard Lowell is not the only one who has ever caught a vision of Jesus that has changed them. John Newton, who I believe is the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn. 
And John Newton said, An evil long took I delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. If you've been waiting, today is the day. Today is the day to catch a vision of Jesus proclaimed through the Scriptures to be saved from your sins. That's one response. Because you've got to serve somebody. But what about the Jews who don't believe? What about those hard-hearted religious types who are looking for any reason to not embrace what Jesus said? What Paul is preaching. You've got to serve somebody. And so these jealous Jews, they start a disturbance. They gather a crowd that turns into a mob. They proclaim emotional words. They spew their propaganda. And then when everything reaches a boiling point, they show a villain for the crowd to attack. What have our villains Paul and Silas done? They accuse them first of being troublemakers. These are those men who have turned the world upside down. I thought about that yesterday, over your five or six hours yesterday, just thinking, meditating over today's message, and I began to think about that statement, these are those that have turned the world upside down. And you know, it is true, partially true, that they were changing the nature of things. The reality is, though, the world was already upside down because at the fall, when sin entered into this world, that's when the world was turned upside down. Sin that is tempted and torn and defeated many of you this week, it is sin that turned this world upside down. In reality, what Paul and Silas are doing is just proclaiming what Jesus has done. Jesus has taken this upside down world and he has turned it upside right. These are the men that have turned the world upside down. And I'm so glad for them. I am so glad for them. I am so thankful for people in our church who have made God-honoring decisions and, and have glorified God with their life. I, I am thankful for that. And you are so encouraging and you are such a witness to the next generation coming along that listen, in every age, in every age, God will have people when they are young who will determine, they're not perfect, but they'll determine, Lord, I will walk with you. And some of you made some hard decisions when you were young to walk with God instead of walking with the crowd. And I am thankful for you. I'm also thankful for those of you like me that did not walk the right way for at least a portion of your life and whose life was turned upside down. Listen, it, 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 and I mean this, not, not, it has nothing to do with me. But I, I, it, it just, it, I mean, I mean, the other week at the football field, we got, we got quite a few people that are involved in this, so you won't be able to figure out who it is, but it just, it just moved me at the flag football field the, the other week when I was talking to, talking to an individual. talking about what God was doing in the church and this individual said to me, said, yeah, you know, I really got away from the Lord and 
and we made a lot of wrong choices. But you know what God does? God sees those of us that have made those wrong choices. And God comes in and says, let me take your upside down world and let me turn it right. Let me turn it right. Let me turn it right. They say these are those that have turned the world upside down. No, sin turns your world upside down. Jesus is now turning it right by ushering in his kingdom, the kingdom of God. What's the second charge? All right, we're, 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 mo- we're moving here. All right, we're moving to conclusion. The second charge was that these Christians were challenging Caesar's authority. Essentially that they were preaching another king, Jesus, and that was partially true. Paul, no doubt, is declaring the lordship of Jesus. That Jesus is the Lord of all things and all of us will either serve him or we won't. And this message is just as true today as it was then. You will either serve him or you will not. But these men were also lying Because they were making it seem as if the followers of Jesus were actively seeking through violence and through words of violence to depose of Caesar and to remove the Roman government and for them to establish a new physical government. They were being accused of being political insurrectionists. Now, many people have asked, and if you ever watch any of these shows on the Discovery Channel or A&E, these things about early Christianity, many people have noticed and asked, why does the kingdom language that is so strong in Jesus, why in Paul's letters does he tend to use other descriptions to describe what God is doing? I think, this is my opinion, I think Paul's letters explain things the way Paul does because Paul knows that what has been said, others are using wrongly to accuse Christians of things that are not true. And so Paul, when he writes in his letters, it's true. He does not use kingdom language as much as Jesus did. But I think that's just so everybody will be clear that we're not, we're not advocating that Christians take up violence to overthrow anybody. In fact, the whole book of Revelation, when you read through it, the Lord God never, never says, I need to raise up a Christian leader to overthrow the government. In fact, Revelation lets us know, just hold on. Because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus is coming, Jesus will deal with everybody. Everybody. Now, they were partly right though. Because the more you think like Jesus, the more you follow his ways, that's going to impact in our society, that's going to impact who you vote for. I'm not saying who you vote for. That is going to impact who you do. The more you become a Christian, the more you're going to notice some things that are not right in your society. And you are going to use your influence. And as much as your world allows you to get involved, you're going to get involved. And you're going to try to point and say, this is what God wants and this is what he does not want. And it is certainly true that churches are going to be instructing themselves and the next generation in the word of God. And the more people become Christians... Harder and harder is, it's going to be able to, for the sinful world to stop what God wants done. So do we, violently, do we violently take up the sword and say we're going to establish the kingdom of God on earth? No, Jesus says I will come and I will establish my kingdom. But they are right. When Jesus comes and the people start to get saved, nothing is the same. Aren't you glad nothing's the same? 
And so here is Paul. And they say, oh, Paul. Paul just wants them to establish a new king. And you better do something about it quick or Caesar won't be in charge. One of my favorite stories, and I, I can't remember the guy's name now, but I don't know if you know how the Roman gladiatorial games ended in Rome. Do you know how they finally ended that? It's a beautiful picture of what happens when Christ's kingdom begins to break into the world. Christianity, they finally stopped persecuting the Christians, uh, but it was, not, it was not any sort of official religion type thing. But in Rome, they finally stopped persecuting the Christians. They kind of had to because there were finally so many of them, they, they couldn't kill all of them. So there are a lot of Christians, and this one Christian decided to go to Rome. He wanted to see the Roman church and to meet the Roman leaders there, and that was a very important city in their world. And so just this regular guy who was deeply committed to the Lord decided to make a journey to Rome. And this is how the gladiatorial games ended in Rome. You know the gladiatorial games? That's when they would, they would go out and they would say, we that are about to die salute you. And then they would go out and they would fight to the death. One would live and one would die. The way those games ended is because this Christian man made a journey to Rome. He wanted to be there and see the great Roman city. And he happened to be there during a festival. And this Christian man went to the Colosseum on this festival because they were uh, doing games. And he got there and it was gladiatorial fighting. And this regular, average, deeply dedicated believer, so maybe not so average, sat in his seat in the Colosseum and stared in horror as he watched human beings kill one another for no reason other than somebody else had put them in that arena and told them to do it. And this one Christian, the accounts say, stood up and started to walk down the steps of the Colosseum and begin to yell, in the name of Christ, I compel you to stop. In the name of Christ, I compel you to stop. In the name of Christ, stop this. And he walked out onto the floor of the arena. And he walked out and he said, in the name of Christ, stop this. Jesus doesn't want you to kill each other. He walked all the way out on the floor. At that point, exactly what happened is not clear. There are, everybody agrees that that happened. Some versions of the story say that the crowd stopped right then and everybody went home. Other versions say that the gladiators got upset and that they took their swords and they slaughtered him. And as he lay there bleeding and dying, as the crowd stopped their angry yelling, he got up and went home. Whatever happened that day, one man stood up, one witness to the kingdom of God stood up and said, please, in the name of Jesus, don't do this anymore and that was the last time after that and the emperor was there when this happened and he signed an edict and it outlawed it outlawed the killing of gladiators they would they wouldn't do it anymore that's how the gladiator gladiatorial games came to an end oh if you're glad that jesus changes us say amen you see that is the philosophy of the greco-roman world let's take folks and let's put them in a cage Let's have them fight like animals. Let's take their life for no reason. You see, this morning you've got to serve somebody. Like the 
Pilate of old, you may be trying to stay neutral on Jesus, but you can't because in the end, the mob does what it always does. It pressured Pilate into crucifying Jesus, and if you try to stay neutral, you will find Jesus will not give you that option. Jesus will press you and push you because Jesus wants to save you. So young man, young woman, person that's been struggling with the Christian faith, you've been, you've been busy, you've been busy thinking of all the reasons not to believe today, you just need to realize, Paul put it plain, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. And the great news is today it can be the Lord. So what will your response to the gospel be? Some Jews rejected. Some believed. Some Greeks embraced them. And boy, it changed Jason's world upside down. I think Jason was probably a good upstanding citizen. Next thing he knew, the mob was at his door. You cannot stay neutral to Jesus. This sinful world, Revelation also teaches us that. You will not stay, you can't stay neutral. And don't think if you embrace Jesus, you're just going to hide out. Jesus won't let you do that. He didn't call you to hide out. He called you to be salt and light, to be a light to this world. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, but today... Could be the Lord. Would you stand with me this morning? Father God, I just ask right now as the musicians come. Lord, I believe. I could sing that song, We Believe, because Lord, I believe. I believe you are God the Father. I believe in your Son Jesus. I believe in the crucifixion. Father God, I confess and believe today that one day you are coming back. Lord, I also believe in this room there are those that have never publicly confessed. They've never publicly embraced you. They've never stepped out on that great journey of faith that Sister Gloria sang about. Lord, they have never done that. But they could today. Lord, I believe your Holy Spirit. I believe today your Holy Spirit is dealing with several people in this room. Lord, today could be the day. Just make it clear they got to serve somebody. Lord, if there's a Christian that has forgotten who they serve, Lord, I pray today they would come. Lord, they would be renewed in faith. Father God, use this time. Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen.